0: A long time ago, on a spinner rack far, far away... comic book time machine episode 77 part of ben's marvel cosmic comics series looking at the marvel licensed sci-fi and fantasy comics with a cover date of april 1978 including star wars number 10 john carter number 11 godzilla king of the monsters number nine human fly number eight and man from atlantis number three plus two bonus kirby books and a sci-fi one shot Hello, time travelers. I'm Ben, Ben Avery, and I am here to talk with you about a trip I have made back in time to January of 1978, where I've picked up a rather significant handful of comics. Now, I won't be giving full coverage to all these comics because some of them are not, strictly speaking, licensed titles, Um, but there are, well... we'll we'll get to it when we get to it but they are spun out of a licensed book and one of them happened because of a licensed book uh what we are going to be looking at as i pulled out the the poly bag that has my slip of paper and my comics in it we will be looking at star wars issue number 10 that'll be this segment and then the following segments john carter warlord of mars number 11 godzilla king of the monsters number nine man from atlantis number three And, of course, The Human Fly, issue number eight. Uh, The other thing we'll be looking at, well, it'll be two issue number ones, and then we'll be taking a peek at Marvel premiere issue number 41. Those three comics, the two number ones, and then that Marvel premiere issue number 41, will be uh, looked at in the, the Ben's Bullpen Bulletin segment at the end of our coverage of april 1978 uh covered april 1978 from marvel were released on the shelves on the spinner racks and on the magazine racks of your local five and dime or your local gas station or in my case at this point in time my local stoppy shoppy uh in january of 1978 so happy new year we are in 1978 it is january and it's very very cold at least where i went it was very very cool i mean i'm going to go in into the areas where i'm familiar and so going back in time to 1978 i've headed back in time but i'm also going up north to sundridge ontario where i grew up and that's where i decided to spend my my 2015 dollars um on some comics in 1978 creating a paradox in which money that should not exist at that point in time now exists at that point in time and who knows maybe it will show up again somewhere someone will find this old 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 quarter and dime from 2015 that should not look as old as it is it should only be you know a year or two old because it's the present day but enough thinking about time paradoxes and uh, using money that is not meant for the time period that is spent in, it's time for us to to read some comics and, and we've got some. Uh, I'm I'm hmm I'm going to say that I am I'm cautiously optimistic about this month. We are wrapping up a story arc with Star Wars number ten. Uh, the segment at the end of this coverage, uh, John Carter, Warlord of Mars, uh, is actually coming after the wrapping up of a a giant story arc from last issue and Godzilla number nine I don't know where that's going to be going man from Atlantis number three um, I'm just going to continue reading that as if I'm reading the television adventures of Aquaman Um, human fly again it's I have no idea what to expect from all these and then of course in Ben's bullpen bulletin when we look at those two number one issues which I'm just going to say it right now They have a lot of potential. A lot of potential. Uh, But for right now, let's just get started and and take a look at Star Wars issue number 10. With a cover price of $0.35 and a cover date of April 1978, uh, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, this was released on the shelves January 10th of 1978. Uh, There's 17 pages of story, and this is wrapping up what I'm calling Han Solo's Magnificent Seven in Space storyline, a four-issue continuing story that basically takes the Magnificent Seven or Seven Samurai and or (laughs) A Bug's Life or Battle Beyond the Stars Basically takes that story that has been used in so many places and repurposes it for Star Wars. Now, to be fair, about that time, you know, 1978, it had had been used a few times, but not nearly as many times as as we've seen it show up in in pop culture now, you know, 40 years later basically. And what this does is um, Han Solo has his team of people and that team of people well well first of all let's talk about the real team behind this not han solo's team but roy thomas's team actually no <laughs> i should play the sad trombone here wah, wah. roy thomas's team is no longer roy thomas's team um howard Chakin is still there as artist and co-plotter and tom palmer is there as co-artist and embellisher and alan cooperberg is there for layouts so i have no clue how this breakdown of the art team really works because so then you also have a colorist uh f Mooley, and then jay costanza is the letterer roy thomas is credited as editor and co-plotter mm-hmm. so this is just a mess of names here uh, don glut is the scriptwriter. my guess based on what i know of how The Marvel method worked and how Roy Thomas was working at the time. Roy Thomas, Howard Chaikin, they had come up with this original story idea. Roy Thomas had the outline. The outline went to Howard Chaikin, who did the, the breakdowns, who did very, very, very sketchy breakdowns. Alan Cooperberg came in, taking the breakdowns, and made actual layouts that could then be embellished and inked by Tom Palmer. After all that was done, again, this is all my perception of how things work and how things possibly did work for this. But after this all was done, they brought in Don Glut to write in the scripting for the rest of the story. Basically, then this is Roy Thomas being kicked off the book and they had to finish the story. Now, you know, to be fair, we've got Roy Thomas there and this is still finishing his story. And so I think the intention of his vision is here. Uh, the scripting, the dialogue and all that kind of thing is not his, but it doesn't – but but it's, it's his story, and, and this is his ending for the story. And after this, he's done. He is out, and I've got some – words that he has given about about being removed from the book and his feelings about being removed from the book and also his feelings about some of the other things that were happening outside of this book because there was two extended universe things happening for star wars this comic book and then a novel called splinter of the mind's eye that was uh, written by alan dean foster written written by the man who actually wrote the novelization for star wars even though george lucas has cover credit for this uh similar to the way gene roddenberry had cover credit for writing the novel of star trek the motion picture and steven spielberg had cover credit for writing the novelization of close encounters of the third kind uh alan dean foster is the actual writer of the novelization of the first star wars movie he's also going to be writing the novelization of the force awakens episode seven and he's also did the novelization for Alien. Um, I mean, he basically, if there is a sci-fi franchise, he ha- has probably been involved in doing some of the novelizations for it. But Don Glutt, by the way, speaking of novelizations, Don Glutt, who, who wrote the script, who, who scripted the, again, this is my interpretation of how things probably happen, but Don Glutt, who took the artwork and then added in the script for the story, uh, he wrote the novelization of The Empire Strikes Back. And now he's written other comics and other film projects and 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 novels and that kind of thing. But um, this is interesting that this would be his first, you know, dip into that, that Star Wars universe. But anyway, um, Roy Thomas, he is out of here after this. And uh, what I like to do is I like to judge these comics based on their story arcs to say if this is worth reading and this is again that first extended universe story arc and what do we get we get the remake of the magnificent seven now han solo and his team well who is his team (laughs) there's a six foot green robot named jackson Uh, there's a female mercenary who is very quick with a gun and very quick with her tongue uh she's got a very quick wit and a very sharp tongue there is don juan quixote who thinks he's one of the remaining few jedis there is a walking porcupine who can shoot his quills there is of course uh chewbacca and han solo and then there is a young farm boy who reminds han solo a little bit of another farm boy that he has fought beside in the past and the only character here um i mean don juan quixote he is still alive he was thought to be dead last issue uh the only thing that is not alive anymore um who actually retains his uh death status i guess is the farm boy's robot which i was not sorry to see him go however i will say uh in this issue more people will be um they'll be dead. (laughs) They will cease to exist. They will no longer be breathing. Um, They'll be done. And in in a very gruesome way, actually, if you really think about it, this is kind of going back to, you know, that kind of family entertainment that wasn't going through the filter of family entertainment. Um, You know, well, we'll get there. We'll get there. Han Solo and his team were brought into a village to save it from marauders, led by Sergi X Aragontas, uh, who is a mustached uh, 70s villain with green sunglasses. And they while they were starting their first battle against this guy, um, an old man from the village off panel ran over to a place and started performing some sort of ritual and summoned a behemoth from below—that's what the cover tells us. And also, we see on the cover that uh, Han Solo and Chewbacca are shooting at this monster, and Han Solo is yelling, "Keep firing, Chewie, or this whole planet is doomed!" Not to mention us. And Chewbacca fires his weapon in agreement. This creature is basically—it's almost like a a walking Komodo dragon. Uh, think of think of King Kong. Only King Kong is a Komodo dragon, and I think that gives it to you. He also has a some spines along his back, and the front most spines shoot a some sort of laser, uh, some sort of blaster thing. And for the most part, the behemoth is attacking Sergi X and his men. He's not attacking Han Solo or the people of the village, other than uh, as a unintentional consequence of knocking over rocks and causing landslides and that kind of thing. This creature is the gun. It has been fired. I don't know. This creature is not the gun. This creature is the bullet. He has been fired from a weapon and there's nothing you can do about the bullet. Once it leaves the barrel of the gun, you can just kind of point it in the direction you want it to go. And, you know, depending on how good of a marksman you are, you're hoping that it's going to hit its target. Well, in this case, the beast's target is Sergei X and Sergei X's men. And it's kind of going toward that target, but it's not. Well, let's see. We're on page, what, one, two, three, four, five. The old man who summoned the creature is in three panels of this issue. And in the first panel, it's it's a splash page. And you kind of get, he's kind of at the bottom there. And then you have two panels of him standing there with his arms raised and waving And then after that panel, uh, Sergi X is flying out towards him and this great big giant foot (laughs) slams down and steps on both of them. Yes, Sergi X is done. The old man is done. And now the creature is just kind of doing what it is going to do. And what is it going to do? It's just going to rampage. It's meandering around the rocks. It's causing lots of trouble for the villagers and for Solo and his team. And so as Solo and his team kind of argue about what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And they're trying to decide, should we be heroic? This isn't what we're getting paid for. We're getting paid to take care of Sergi X and his men. His men have run away. Sergi X has been smushed. (laughs) Just done. Uh, What are they going to do? Well, Don Juan he decides he's going to go and attack the beast with his lightsaber and he's got the right idea because the beast is a you know kind of scared of his lightsaber and realizes the lightsaber is death for him but the problem is Don Juan is not the lightsaber is a threat the one carrying the lightsaber is a feeble old man who probably doesn't have any kind of you know force sensing abilities at all So, the team does work together a little bit to stay alive together. But this is where Han Solo realizes oh, the old man's got the right idea. He just doesn't have the physical ability to follow through on it. If only he was a little bit faster. If only we could get out there and help him quicker. And so, we get one of the weirdest scenes I have seen ever. I thought that Han Solo riding in to the rescue, like the cavalry, uh on a bantha was weird and kind of goofy and funny but also you know hey it's a nice use of the star wars universe right chewbacca picks up han solo under his arm and runs han solo toward the monster like like he's running in for a touchdown and they get to don juan chewie drops him drops han solo han solo takes the lightsaber now like he's passing it off in a a relay race Han Solo, then lightsaber in hand runs toward the monster, stabs the beast in the belly. And then they all dive away as the creature dies. And then we have our resolution, our final page where the young farm boy decides not to take his uh, money And instead chooses to stay in the village because the young pretty lady that Han Solo had seen earlier, uh, she actually is interested romantically in the the young farm boy. Han Solo and the rest of his group take their meager earnings and head off Han Solo considering the fact that um, he's got the money, he can take care of the Millennium Falcon. And for only a minute, he got a little feeling of what it's like. To be a Jedi Knight. Now speaking of Jedi Knights. We do have one page of Princess Leia. Flying off to rescue uh, Luke Skywalker. Because Luke Skywalker was looking for a place. For them to have a new base. And he reported in and had something. Terrify him. That he was shocked to see. But then communications were cut off. So now she's flying off to help him. Uh, we get one page of that but that's you know it's a subplot we needed the the issue belongs to han solo and i have to say there's it's just some weird stuff so again some weird storytelling happening here roy thomas did his outline howard chaykin did his breakdowns or whatever it is loose loose sketches and they're trying to piece together from those loose sketches what this is supposed to be and then you have don glutt coming in and trying to figure out from the artwork, what they're supposed to be saying and everything, but the old man who summoned the beast last time just came out of nowhere, not because it wasn't set up. It was set up. It's just when it actually happened, it was only in one panel and they were, we were told what was happening. Uh, we weren't even really seeing what was happening. It would have been nice to have some setup. And then he's just stepped on with Sergi X. I mean, he called the beast to destroy Sergi X. That happened and that worked. Um, I just found it to be really weird storytelling choice to kill off the old man. I guess it makes sense that, you know, let's kill him off rather than have something happen where it's like, oh, no, I can't control the beast. Now, Uh, the one person who could possibly, you know, put the genie back in the bottle got stepped on by the genie now (laughs) and genie ain't going back. What this does is it goes then to these mercenaries who are there for the money. They have to choose. Are we going to fight this thing or are we going to get out of dodge? And they do decide to do the heroic thing based on actually the example of that crazy old coot. Uh, But Han Solo, (laughs) you get this brilliant, wonderful, incredible, awesome Star Wars moment on one page, page, uh, I think it's 15. But on the previous page, you have this ridiculously stupid moment (laughs) that if this was live action, I'm trying to think how how could they even possibly try and film this without everyone on the crew just thinking this is stupid? This is absolutely stupid to have Chewbacca physically lift under his arm on Solo and run him into the end zone. But the moment where he takes that lightsaber and where he runs forward with that lightsaber, it's a heroic moment and he stabs i mean this is this is classic mythological storytelling here this is him you know stabbing the underbelly of the beast with the magic sword uh as he's running and just the body language of this guy as he's running uh his you know fist raised back behind him with the hand with the sword in the foreground and he's his he's (laughs) you only see one leg he's running so hard that uh his his other leg is is completely extended behind him, uh, but he's running right towards us. Chewbacca standing behind, watching, waiting uh, this moment. And then the turn of the page and it's the splash page of the beast dying. This is some great stuff. Great mythological storytelling, not just awesome story for a Star Wars moment, you know, where you have Han Solo with a lightsaber doing the Jedi thing. Very cool. I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, You know who did not enjoy it a lot? George Lucas did not enjoy this a lot. And, you know, overall, that story, for me, it's hit and missed. It's good enough that I would give it a thumbs up. I do recommend the story arc. And not just from the perspective of this is the first new Star Wars story to go out. You know, they after this, or I should say during this. You had the Alan Dean Foster splinter of the mind's eye. After this, you did have a few children's books that came out that had different adventures for Luke and the team and and that kind of thing. But this was the first. And so on one level, it's really interesting from just that creative storytelling, franchise building, historical view, but the story itself. It's a Han Solo story. It gets into his character. It looks at him as a mercenary. It looks at him as a gun for hire. And it looks at him as someone maybe who wants to go beyond gun for hire to becoming more, you know, hero. And so it's worth reading, I think. I give it a thumbs up. But there's a lot of ups and downs with it. Jackson the Rabbit, it is stupid. I mean, I'm just going to throw that out there. It doesn't fit the universe. I know that this is where uh, I think Roy Thomas looked at Chewbacca and was like, well, they got a walking dog. Why not a walking uh, rabbit? But then he also puts in the porcupine guy, too. I mean, this is kind of silly stuff. But yeah, like I said, as a riff on The Magnificent Seven, it works as a Star Wars story. It works overall a thumbs up. George Lucas was not too happy, though. Um, in his article about, um, uh, star Wars, the comic that saved Marvel or uh, how I learned to stop worrying and love star Wars or whatever, Roy Thomas is recalling his experiences with the star Wars comic. And he says, uh, we've read maybe some of this a little bit already, but as it progressed, I came to feel that Howard shaken for whose artwork I'd always had the utmost respect wasn't giving his all on the pencil layouts. I learned later he was actually being ghosted part of the time by our mutual friend Alan Cooperberg, who was doing a creditable job. But shaken is shaken; nobody else is. Howard is definitely one of the post-Silver Age great artists, with American Flag perhaps his greatest single accomplishment. So here we already have kind of this problem of who's who's actually drawing this comic. And then one day I got the phone call from Charlie Lippincott. He informed me that George was unhappy with the way the storyline was going. I reminded Charlie that I cleared it in advance, but Charlie said that George thought it was too close to the Magnificent Seven. Who knows? Maybe it was. By the way, me, you know, interrupting the, the flow of the quote here, but it is really close. It is really, really close. What's more, George particularly disliked one of the seven being a six foot alien who resembled a green bugs bunny in space gear. In the latter instance, I have been inspired in part by seeing a porky pig-looking alien in the Cantina sequence, either in the rough cut or on some production sketches at some early point. I don't remember if that alien appears in the finished movie, movie since that part of the film contains several 11th-hour inserts of other more colorful aliens sitting in dark corners, and something may have been cut to make room for them. I figured my green rabbit, Jackson, wasn't really much weirder than a Wookiee, But obviously, George, as the creator of the Star Wars mythos, felt differently. I respected George and Charlie. But this line of conversation was beginning to annoy me. And then he goes on to talk about how Robert E. Howard didn't bother him because Robert E. Howard was dead. And so he could do uh, Conan stories however he wanted to do them. And he wasn't going to be bothered by the person who actually created the universe. And then there was the money issue. I remember reading uh, from Howard Chaikin and how he was upset by the whole money situation. But uh, here's Roy Thomas also. He says, at the same time, I'll admit I was feeling a bit put off, too, regarding certain monetary matters. It was an open secret that Alan Dean Foster had ghosted the Star Wars novel that came out circa spring of 1977, even though the byline read by George Lucas and that George had given Foster a sizable bonus when the movie proved a smash. And of course, everyone knows how George gave Mark Hamill Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher valuable points in the picture as an after-the-fact gesture of goodwill. I didn't begrudge any of that quartet their good fortune. They all earned it. But I, who had fought to get Star Wars published as a comic book at the time when George and Charlie really, really wanted it adapted as a comic, had never received even a thank you or, more crucially, a single cent beyond my regular page rate from Marvel, and $2 per page each time, or at least most times, that Marvel reprinted the first six issues. By pointedly asking Stan for a bonus at one point, I finally got an extra $500 for my Star Wars labors, but I wasn't exactly feeling appreciated on any front with regard to my work on the adaptation. Jim Shooter, who succeeded Archie Goodwin as Marvel's editor-in-chief some months after the Star Wars comic was launched, underscored my point in a recent interview in which he said that he was in a position to know that the Star Wars comic basically saved Marvel from going under in the late 1970s. I'll assume Jim knew whereof he spoke. And hence the title of this piece. Not that I had any true quarrel with Marvel, of course. Sure, it made formidable profits on the first six issues of the comic in particular, reprinting them over and over, then combining them into a pair of tabloid-sized specials and finally lumping both the tabloids into one volume. I just wanted a bit more of a taste of the profits. Even when I helped Marvel put together a black-and-white paperback reprint of the movie adaptation, I had to fight to get Howard Chaikin's and my name added to the cover, which originally was laid out to support only those of George Lucas and Stan Lee, who was credited for his special introduction. I became, shall we say, fairly vocal in my insistence that the name of the actual writer and main artist be added to that cover as well. Stan understood my point, and the change was duly made. Roy Thomas then goes on to talk about how he, you know, Alan Dean Foster gets this bonus, but all that Roy Thomas was getting was grief over, you know, the stuff that he was writing. And so he basically said, after issue 10, he's done, he's out, please tell George it was fun being a part of things, but, you know, he wanted to end things on friendly terms. And that's where we're going to end things. Next issue will be Star Wars number 11, which will start off a new storyline of some sort. I don't know much about what's going to be happening from here. There's no green rabbit to cause fans to write articles about worst characters in the Star Wars universe. So I have no idea where we're going. I do know where I'm going next, though, in the next segment of this coverage of cover date April 1978 of the Marvel licensed sci-fi books. And that will be to... Man from Atlantis, number three. So um, we'll we'll do that here in our next segment. So here we are, the third issue of Man from Atlantis. And uh, I, I'm guessing most people have not read. Um, I'm guessing most people maybe haven't even heard of Man from Atlantis. It was based on a TV show that was on, uh, I believe, NBC and... It, it was a uh, part of a, a deal with Hanna-Barbera. That's uh, actually from what I've been able to piece together. And during this time, they were also, Marvel was publishing Hanna-Barbera comic books like Laugh olympics and that kind of thing. Uh, Man from Atlantis, the setup is basically a guy kind of like Submariner or uh, Aquaman washed up on the shore with no memory. So imagine Aquaman only with a little dash of born identity, uh, but with a dash of uh, 70s hour-long television adventure dramas. Uh, the Stanley Presents Man from Atlantis blurb in the beginning of the comic book says, Journey with us below the ocean's surface to a place of darkness and eternal silence where man cannot go without his protective technology. A vast alien place in which countless secrets are hidden countless mysteries unsolved it was in this aquatic other world that mark harris was born stanley presents man from atlantis and this particular issue is called showdown in cetopia like other comics of this time it's a cover price of 35 cents giving us 17 pages of story Basically, two pennies per page of story, plus a whole bunch of ads uh because I mean they are printing a thirty two page volume here with with four more pages with the covers added on uh so you're, you're getting as far as story goes, two cents per page of story and a penny for the cover and I have to say the cover is not good; I just don't <laughs> like this cover. Uh, the perspective is weird. Um, the proportions are off. As far as the, the you have Man from Atlantis, Mark Harris hanging onto the back of a a mini submarine craft kind of thing that has a canopy that you can see the driver of the submarine craft. And based on the size of the driver and the size you know in the in the background, uh, and then the size of Mark Harris, Man from Atlantis hanging onto the back of that thing. Um, it's, that thing's really long. <laughs> it's just really long, but it's just an awkward angle. You, you can't tell really what's going on. He's hanging on at an awkward angle. It just, it, it just doesn't work for me. And it, the, the inks are muddy on it. Uh, the character design, the the guy's face just doesn't look like, well, anybody's, I mean, and there's so much kind of black inking uh, with the shadows and stuff between his shoulder and his face that, there's not a lot of definition uh, to let you know when one stops and when the other starts. It's just a not a very good cover. And considering my feelings of issue number two, which is part one of this story here that we have, which I wasn't all that impressed with, wasn't all that intrigued by. Uh, I just remember not liking it a whole lot. Um, so between the cover and the actual, you know, issue that was leading up to this i didn't have very high hopes for this issue after reading it though and i'm just going to go ahead and, and put it out there right now my expectations were both met and i also found myself surprised by some things that happened that went beyond my expectations uh it just when i say my expectations were met what I really mean is, you know, it, it, there were elements of this that I was just, oh, it's exactly what I was expecting. And it, it wasn't, I, I was expecting, let, let, I'll just throw it out there. But here's the setup. Last issue, we, we met our problem. Our problem was there was a mist that came, uh, came over a fleet of vessels out in the ocean doing um, training maneuvers. And everyone on board disappeared. So Mark Harris and his friend Dr. Elizabeth Merrill were, were sent to help the Navy recover those missing officers. And in the process, the mist came and Mark Harris was taken. And Elizabeth Merrill was taken. And not only were the people, you know, just removed from these place, from these boats, they were also then put under mind control by a Mr. Schubert who is apparently the arch enemy for mark harris from the tv show Uh, i would know because i haven't seen the tv show although after reading this comic you know it kind of did its job now if i were reading this as a as a kid and got this off the stands and hadn't watched the show i definitely would have wanted to watch the show i think as an adult i'm very curious about the show And I think I've mentioned this before, especially I think after reading the first issue, I really am very curious to see what the show is like. And if the show is good and or if it's just, you know, maybe not even good, but is it bad enough and in the right way for me to actually enjoy as a kind of 70s kitsch kind of thing Uh, like Logan's Run? Logan's Run, the TV show. I enjoyed it as a 70s sci-fi show. And so I've. there are two sets of DVDs out there. One is a set that can cl- collects the TV movies of Man from Atlantis. And the other is the set that collects 13 episodes of the TV show, two of which never aired on television. It was ordered for a full season, but canceled halfway through, which doesn't give me hope that it's great although part of that might be just the budget that it cost to film underwater so much might not have been worth what they were actually getting from advertisers and and from viewers so yeah there's a big part of me that just would like to just see what's behind this comic especially after reading this one now i understand a comic is going to be different from the show first of all The budget constraints are not there at all, which is evident here. Uh, Our setup is that he was captured by Mr. Schubert, but he is now in Seatopia, which is an underwater city, basically. And you have, you know, the Navy going out and doing maneuvers, not because it's a big part of the plot to get there. You know, that's that's the conclusion. That's the climax. No, it's a pretty minor part of the plot. It's just, that's where these guys get kidnapped from. And so they 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 could have done, you know, they did do a lot more. They had an exploding underwater base in this, you know, straight from a James Bond kind of movie. And so they're in Citopia, And not only has he been captured, but Mr. Schubert is going to have him dissected. And how is he going to be dissected? Well, his good friend, Dr. Elizabeth Merrill, is under mind control as well and so she is actually the one who is going to dissect mark harris and kill him find out all the secrets of his anatomy so that mr schubert can create the perfect underwater human that kind of thing so i expected this to just go into a standard he's going to escape this part then he's going to run down and escape another thing and then he's going to end up you know destroying the plan and mr schubert is going to you know lose the battle but then run away and and escape to fight another day and uh, partially that expectation was met however there were some other things that were happening here that I wasn't expecting. First of all, how he escaped. Uh maybe if I'd watched the show I would have known that he has a sonic scream that he can do. And this sonic scream does the job. It it causes uh the mind control devices to backfire and and, and break down. But it also causes a window in the laboratory to crack and water to start just rushing in to Zootopia. This, then, it creates a problem for Mr. Schubert because, you know, you, you want to keep things airtight and waterproof if you're going to be living underwater. But that's a nice little bit of storytelling where you have the hero, you know, everything is lost. He's not – how can he possibly escape the situation? And then when he finally does escape the situation, he does so in a way that escalates into another problem. That's good storytelling. And I wasn't expecting that kind of storytelling, but it's good. I mean, here are storytellers. I I should, I should have done this from the beginning. It's Bill Mantlo who's writing this and Frank Robbins who's drawing. And Bill Mantlo, you know, he's a guy that sometimes he writes stuff that I'm just not all that impressed with, like Human Fly. But there are other things coming that I am excited to talk about because Bill Mantlo wrote it. And he did some really amazing things with some concepts that really could have been quite stupid. Now, I don't find Man from Atlantis as a concept to be stupid. It's about a guy who, you know, it's it's your classic, oh, I'm going to go ahead and say it. I mean, I, I thought it, thought maybe I shouldn't, but I'm I'm going to go ahead and go there. It's your classic fish out of water story where you have, An alien of some form, you know, whether it's Mork, whether it's Starman, or whether it's uh, Bill Bixby in The Incredible Hulk, where he's set off for one reason or another. And in this case, it's because he washed up on the shore with no memory, but with special powers that allow him to live underwater, leading you to believe that he probably is from Atlantis. The concept itself is not stupid. But like all concepts, it could easily be done half-heartedly, making it stupid. I firmly believe that there's no such thing as a stupid concept. What I believe is that it's what you do with it. And you can take the most stupid-sounding concept, but if you do good characterization, if you have good plots, if you script intelligently, the most ridiculous of concepts can be successfully written. And the greatest of concepts can be unsuccessfully written. And this is one that I just, because of last issue, because of the cover, I was expecting this to not be well done. And I was kind of wrong. I This isn't a perfect comic. This isn't a greatest story ever. This isn't going to be on anyone's list. Anyone. At all in the whole world, it's not going to be on anyone's top 10 comic list unless it's one of 10 comics that that person has ever read and never read more than that. So, yes, if a person has only read nine comics, this will go on their top 10 list. If that person only read 20 comics, it still might go on their top 10 list. I mean, this is not. Groundbreaking. But it is solid storytelling because, well, I mean, first of all, like I said, it has that whole idea of as much as things go right, because it goes right, something else goes wrong. And then you have to overcome that. And it's good escalating storytelling in that regard. The other thing that I wasn't expecting and and part of this, I wasn't expecting this because I was stuck in the James Bond mode. I was just looking at this as kind of a ripoff of a James Bond style of villain, James Bond style of villain's plot, a James Bond style of villain's lair even. And I was so just kind of stuck in that mode from last issue that I wasn't expecting the mist that I mean, we're in the Bermuda Triangle. And Mr. Schubert has this mist. And I just thought the mist was a weapon. But the mist, they actually flirt with the idea that the mist could be a almost sentient form of of life. And not, you know, they also kind of flirt with the idea that it's just, you know, doing what it does because it's a natural occurrence. But Mr. Schubert uses this mist to actually teleport people to his lair to Cetopia. And then as Mark Harris comes after Mr. Schubert, Mr. Schubert adjusts the chemistry of the mist so it becomes a disintegrator. And it's he says, I'm going to go ahead and sacrifice Cetopia to destroy you. And so the mist is going and as it goes, it's just kind of destroying everything. It's destroying the computers, it's destroying the walls, it's destroying chairs, it's destroying everything. And it's kind of creeping around toward Mark Harris. Now, at this point, I'm still not thinking in terms of it could be sentient, but I am liking this idea of him fighting Mist. And he actually is fighting the Mist. It's not just a a mysterious thing. It's a real threat that's coming after him. And he figures out a way to escape. And he's able to to get to Mr. Schubert's escape uh, vehicle, like you see on the cover, and hold it in place. And then the mist is coming, but then there's a mist on one side, and there's another mist on the other side. I really wish they could have played more with this, this idea of these this mist creature that actually is what causes the disappearances to happen in the Bermuda Triangle. And these two missed things kind of converge on Mr. Schubert's thing and teleport him away. Where is he? Who knows? He's gone away so he can come back on the show sometime or come back on one of these issues sometime. But it's it's great. It's fun. It's comic booky. And it just I enjoyed reading it because I wasn't expecting any of that kind of thing to happen. Uh, Now they they do not I, I might be reading into this as far as it being kind of a sentient creature and but once I started seeing it as a sentient creature I mean now we're not in James Bond territory now we're in more of a Star Trek territory or or a Twilight Zone territory where you know this villain is going to use this creature as a weapon and then the creature rebels against it because it goes against the creatures nature And maybe, like I said, I might be reading into that. But once I started wondering, okay, so why is there, you know, two mists now? Why is one coming? It just seemed to me the original was going after Mr. Schubert. And then a second one was coming because it was maybe attracted to the danger that the first one had been put into. And so then I'm starting to wonder, okay, so does that mean these, you know, this mist? when it was coming after mark harris was actually instead of just creeping around because that's what mist does you know it goes into the air and it just floats around going where the currents of air are taking it is it actually choosing to go to these places and choosing to come after mark harris and then choosing to when it has the opportunity to go after mr schubert and the idea really started intriguing me, and I feel like I've I've read, you know, kind of an interesting story with some interesting complications and some interesting implications as far as the story goes. Now, what the story itself does give us is that Mr. Schubert is, you know, he sees the one mist and he says, but what's it doing on both sides of me? It can't split itself up like that without evaporating unless, oh, no there's another mist no not mine but and then he's he's gone that's what the story really gives us and then at the end what the story is really focusing on is this whole bermuda triangle thing uh, mark harris says i think mr schubert dared to tamper with forces far beyond his understanding both he and his destructive mist fell victim in the end to the real secret of the bermuda triangle and so you know maybe what you have there is is just that other mist is the natural uh, way of things in the Buner triangle, and that was coming and took away both Mr. Schubert and the destructive mist that was going to you know destroy everything that it touched and maybe there's no sentience there at all it's just a a natural occurrence, but whatever it might be, I kind of liked it i I liked it in the way that I would hope to like it now I would love to have liked it more, but to come in with low expectations and then have them, you know, met by this kind of clever little story. Uh, I, I I feel like my, (laughs) if, if it had been me spending 35 cents back in the seventies, uh, I would have definitely felt like I I got my money's worth as it is where I was for these man from Atlantis comics. I think they were a dollar, dollar 20, something like that. Uh, yeah, for a dollar 20, it was a a worthy investment, a worthy investment in in time and fun. And I got some little bit of discussion out of it, talking with you, and I got a little bit of fun thinking about it. And I enjoyed reading it both the first time and and the rereads as I was taking notes and that and that kind of thing. Now, usually, what I have said I would do is I would hold off on recommending things though until I finish a story arc. Uh, issue one had a couple different stories in it. Then issue two and three are together one long story uh the i don't know how long this run of comics of man from atlantis went here with issue number three we do have a a breaking point with a new story in the next issue the next issue that's promised says oh where is that uh next issue the killer spores so it looks like we have some you know more natural occurrences that he'll be fighting against but issue two and three do i do i recommend not in the same way that i would like star wars uh where it was so interesting because it was a part of star wars history this man from atlantis series i don't see there being a lot of people really wanting to rush out and get this uh, unless you know you really like that kind of 70s comic storytelling and one of the, again, one of the ways that I've kind of learned to look at this is I'm reading a comic book. But as I'm reading this comic book, I'm looking at it through the lens of I'm watching a TV show about Aquaman. What if this comic was Aquaman's TV show in the 70s? And that's another reason why, man, I, I just kind of you know, want to see the show itself. But So as far as recommendation goes like I said before, this is not groundbreaking. This is not changing the medium. This is not going to make you, you know, look at this and say, Oh, now I understand storytelling more or, Oh, this art is amazing. And I want to cut some of it out and put it up on my wall. This isn't going to do any of that, but it's a nice diversion. And, you know, if I was trapped on a a deserted island. And all I had was man from Atlantis comics to read uh, at least the first couple of times, the first couple of weeks of being trapped on that Island. I would enjoy myself. Maybe after week three or four, I could use it to start a fire. Who knows? But that ends this segment of the uh, walk through Marvel's cosmic comics. And from here, well, you know, since this one went above my expectations, I'm going to go to Human Fly next, which I have a feeling is going to just meet expectations. And Human Fly, well, my expectations are fairly low there. So I think that's where we're going to go next for the next segment as we're looking through April 1978 cover date comics by Marvel. Okay, so the Human Fly issue number eight published well released rather on the stands in january of 1978 cover price 35 cents get 17 pages of story like i said with uh the man from atlantis that's two cents per page that you're paying for each page of story plus another penny for the cover and what a cover it is It promises us mayhem at the Metropolitan. It tells us that the human fly is the wildest superhero ever because he's real. It says a charity stunt flings the fly into conflict against the incredible Copperhead. Incredible Copperhead. And it's guest starring a special guest, the White Tiger. So we are once more returning into territory that will remind us that the human fly is taking place in the Marvel 616 universe. When we get to the end of the story, we are going to find out that there is going to be another reminder that we are in the Marvel universe. And, you know, most of what I'm reading for this series won't be like this uh, right now. Later on, we're going to get into some things that have some tight, tight connections to the Marvel Universe. But right now, Star Wars is not. Godzilla is. Human Fly is. The man from Atlantis is not. John John Carter is not part of the Marvel Universe. But then there was Conan. Uh, now, we're not touching Tarzan. Tarzan, I think, was in its own realm. Uh, but Conan was, I mean, that was laying groundwork for huge, huge swaths of Marvel history between Conan and, and King call uh, or crawl Yeah, not crawl crawl is that science fiction movie from the eighties that I like a lot more than I probably should. Speaking of crawl, I actually tried to track down who had the, who owned the rights to crawl and, and try to see if I could option the rights to do a, a crawl comic book. Um, I, I had some good ideas for that, but uh, when I contacted the company that licensed, uh, well, I shouldn't say contacted the company that licensed it, the, the company that owns some of the rights to crawl, uh, they decided that it really wasn't even worth the time to have any lawyers look into. The possibility that they might be able to license the comic book out to me, and uh, and when I realized that they weren't going to be hiring lawyers to do that, uh, I certainly was not going to be hiring lawyers to do that because I was just a guy, not not you know, not even a small comic book publisher at the time. So, yeah, so that's why there's no Ben Avery presents Crawl the further adventures. Um, so, yeah, I've just spent a couple minutes now talking about something other than the human fly. And honestly, I would rather talk about almost anything other than the human fly. <laughs> but all, all that to say, Conan and, and the other um, Robert E. Howard barbarian stuff that Marvel published were, again, tied into the history of Marvel as far as, you know, the ancient history of the marvel 616 universe the human fly is takes place squarely in the marvel 616 and in this issue uh you know first issue we had spider-man huge guest star i mean he's he's a get man you know i mean if you're gonna have a guest star you want to have spider-man this is before the time when if you had a guest star you wanted to have wolverine and way before the time when if you had a guest star you wanted to get deadpool no spider-man was the get but in issue number eight we have the white tiger who apparently had appeared in at this point two issues of spider-man now i'm going to just admit right now i don't have a very long history with the white tiger i believe that i may have had one comic as a kid that had this guy in it uh his name's hector Hector Ay- Ayala, I, I'm, I'm positive I'm saying his name wrong. It's a, it's a Spanish or a Hispanic name. But he, this is the first white tiger, and, and he was created by Bill Mantlo. And this is, I only know this because I looked it up. He's created by Bill Mantlo and George Perez, actually, in The um, Deadly Hands of Kung Fu. And he appeared in some Spider-Man issues and some Daredevil issues and in The Human Fly so our story (laughs) this i'm sorry i mean i like the human fly as an idea i don't like the human fly so much in execution this story kind of stinks and the art isn't that great this is bill mantlow and frank robbins who also did the you know the man from atlantis issue from the previous segment here that we were doing uh with with this april 1978 but this story makes very little sense. It really comes down to, I think, Bill Mantlo kind of had a cliffhanger in mind and had the resolution for the cliffhanger in mind and then had to figure out, how do I get to that cliffhanger so I can use the resolution that I want to use? Uh, it comes down to this. Uh, Human Fly is doing a benefit at the Metropolitan in New York and he's doing skateboard stunts, you know, and that's going to come back because he's going to use the skateboard to get around the museum real fast when he needs to get the bad guy uh, it does say, actually, we have Bill Mantlo writer, Frank Robbins artist, New York tribe inks, which just kind of tells me that this was a rush job to get this finished in time uh, because they, they use this this team of inkers. Joe Rosen letters, Mary Titus colors and Archie Goodwin editor, but then special thanks to Adam Mantlo of the suicide skydivers skateboard club for technical advice. I almost feel like this was Bill Mantlo kind of saying, what are the kids like these days? Skateboards. So he's going to do some skateboard stuff and skateboard. He does. He goes around a loop to loop, just like a hot wheels car would. Um, Then we have some moments with, uh, our reporter, Miss White, who, you know, she's gotta think about oh oh wow, I'm supposed to, you know, do the expose on him for my job or if I don't do it, I'll lose my job and and she wants to talk to Human Fly and Human Fly wants to talk to Harmony White. I mean she's she's now being nicer, kind of, but it's you know, there it's one of those things where uh, you know, it's a television thing especially but even movies do this and and it's happening here where like if the characters would just talk you know I don't know how much time between last issue and this issue occurred but between last issue and this issue they didn't get a chance to and now she's trying to talk to him in the middle of the whole stunt thing and uh, it's not a time not a good time and so they're probably not going to get a chance to talk between now and the next you know issue when she's going to have to try and interrupt a stunt to try and talk to him But it's it's that's not terribly bad. I mean, we've had some pretty goofy opening stunts with like the shark thing and that. But uh, meanwhile, you have Hector and he is walking around. He's kind of, you know, being a little grumpy and feeling bad for himself and thinking about the fight he had with Spider-Man. And uh, he's heading into the museum. And unfortunately, in the museum is Copperhead. Copperhead again i I really don't know who this guy is, so I had to look him up and I found out that he he appeared in a couple Daredevil issues before this and not much after this uh and I, I don't want to give away too much. I have a feeling from what I read on Wikipedia about this character that next issue is going to reveal a lot more about him. All I do know is that he has a copper face and it's copperhead he speaks with kind of a snaky kind of lisp where he'll say now there is no one who shares my secret speaking of uh, i never understood why it was that when they would write snake dialogue they do the s on all the things you know i can understand the s on all the you know actual s sounds like when he says uh So I grant you a parting gift of verse to quote the poetess in your death. He lies there with pennies on his eyes. But then they also do like extra S's for when it's the sh sound. It just I don't understand why, because it's a different sound. It's not, you know, the snake hisses. A snake doesn't hiss with a she it, but I digress. I mean, and actually, this comic makes me want to digress a lot. Now, the Copperhead thing. Um, one element that does kind of intrigue me is that after he kills this guy in the museum, he puts pennies on his eyes. Pennies are made out of copper, but then that's also to send them across the river. Sticks, and see, that's that's a sound. That's that's a S sound right there. You have the sticks. And then with the X's, there should have been, have been extra S's with the X sound in sticks. But they didn't do it, and I'm not the editor of the book. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It, it's an intriguing little element there. And, and uh, like I said, I have a feeling that in issue nine, we're going to find out more about the background of this guy. Anyway, this guy, this Copperhead guy, he... <laughs> Has an interesting uh, modus operandi, but he has a ridiculous, stupid plan. And uh, well, first of all, they he's he's there. He's just killed this guy. But now he left and Hector comes in and the police come in just as Hector bends over the dead body. And so you have the classic misunderstanding of the hero body because he's investigating. But then the police come and see him with the dead body and think that he is actually the one who killed him he runs away which also makes them think that maybe he's guilty for you know murder Uh, but he runs around the corner turns into the white tiger and leaps at the police and bounds past them because he has to find copperhead the villain i mean obviously there's a villain involved because he knows he didn't do it meanwhile human fly is zipping around (laughs) on his skateboard You know, to get around quicker, it's a museum, it has flat floors and open hallways, and of course it's going to be just easier to get around um, all the fragile exhibits. And then there's a bunch of children, of course, because this is a Human Fly comic, there has to be children involved, and they are all... Walking, he he makes them go into this room with a bunch of Greek artifacts where they're going to be safe because they heard you know the commotion and everything. But Copperhead is actually trying to steal a great big giant huge Greek urn. And so he's actually in the room with them. So as human fly and white tiger confront Copperhead, the urn starts to sink down into the 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 floor and now there's some gunfire and so the human fly tells them you've got to hide behind that urn they can't get out of hiding because if they get out of hiding behind this urn they're going to get shot so he jumps down to be with them the white tiger stays up to stick with uh copperhead and and continue fighting human fly and the urn and the children are now under the museum in an abandoned subway uh tunnel That is now going to fill up with water. Now, there's guns up above. There's water down below. I don't even know if they could get back up above from where they are. And the white tiger then goes to fight Copperhead. But gets shot by a poison dart. Like he used to kill the museum guy. And so we end on a cliffhanger. With white tiger having been shot by the dart. And he is falling unconscious. And it says, uh, the, I'm going to go ahead and read the captions for what it says about human fly. Um, and thus falls the white tiger leaving only the human fly, a man possessed of no extraordinary powers, a man with no super strengths to save himself, his friends, the children in his care, and to single handedly try to stop the sinister schemes of copperhead. And then it says, well, almost single-handedly, next issue, Daredevil makes three. So, Human Fly, White Tiger, Daredevil, they're going to team up against Copperhead in the next issue. But I have a feeling I know where this is going to go. They're going to all get into the urn and ride the urn down the rapids or something. Uh, But the, the urn is big enough that these children could probably all fit in there. But I'm just you know human fly calls it out he says you know whoever did this must be really rich to be able to have this kind of a plan and it's true this plan is ridiculous i mean he's trying to steal a great big huge copper urn at least i was, i didn't actually i just thought of that is it copper it would make sense if it is because you know he's copperhead i guess but it's one of those Villain schemes where it just costs way more to implement than it could ever pay off, unless it's paying off in that it's made out of copper and Copperhead wants it. And he's, you know, saying, Money is no object. I want this. It's going to be mine. I don't care. But money is an object. And at least in my world, and, uh, if I had read this as a kid, I don't think I would have really enjoyed it, although I would have reread it over and over again because I reread all of my comics over and over again, uh, even the ones that weren't that great. But reading this now as an adult, the kitsch of the 70s um, that, that sometimes, you know, kind of comes in on these comics, it's it's all here, but it is not fun At least not fun in the way that Man from Atlantis kind of was and that John Carter has definitely been and Star Wars has been. I guess what I'm saying in some ways, or what I'm feeling rather, in some ways is these are stories that are just getting put out there just because Bill Mantlo was hired to write them and he's going to do it. But it's not like he has a burning story idea that he really wants to put out there. And this is one of the first ones where I didn't feel like it was as heartfelt as far as you know. This is for the kids. You know, this is for uh, to inspire kids. Now, it, I guess it was trying to you know get into some multi multiculturalism, where the the event that he is doing his ex- exhibition at, um, it's it's an inner city festival, and the people come all ages and all races for music and for culture and for food and. Um, you know the kids that he's helping. You know in the past have had uh, disabilities of different sorts. You know maybe they're in a wheelchair or maybe they're blind or something like that. Uh, in this case, it's you know a group of of kids who are definitely it's it's a multicultural group, and so there is that element. But there's I just don't feel like oh I I want to tell this story because I want to inspire someone. It just feels like more like ah oh, I'm going to tell the story because I've got to tell this story. What else am I going to do? Oh, skateboarding. Oh, what if it's at a museum and oh, Copperhead, He would want to get something that's big in copper. you know i I'm just not enjoying this so much. Uh, and it's not the kind of thing where I'm just so amazed at how bad it is. It's just it just it's just really middle of the road. Again, not bad enough to be good and not good enough to be great. It's just, it's there, and the art is okay. Although I was wondering about the whole underwater poses of Frank Robbins' art, uh, the kind of awkward poses of his Mark Harris, the man from Atlantis. These Those same poses are happening here. There's some weird angles to how the bodies are being held, and they all, I, I think, are anatomically possible, but... And maybe part of it is just I'm just so not impressed uh and and this is not anything against Bill Mantlow. This is my opinion uh as I'm reading this uh and like I said, he's super talented. He has done some stuff that I've been really inspired by honestly, this is not one of them. So on that note, I'm going to <laughs> take uh bring this third segment of uh the april nineteen seventy eight coverage. To a close, and move on to uh, Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Can Can we talk about Godzilla? Can we talk about good Godzilla movies? Can we talk about the kind of Godzilla movies that people like because it's actually engaging and entertaining and not because it's really poorly made with poor special effects and poor lip sync dubbing there are kind of these two different areas of, of godzilla movies the so bad it's good and then the the so good it's good and so for example the first godzilla movie is an example of a movie that is actually a really really strong sci-fi creature feature and it deserves a place in sci-fi movie history as a, a legitimate feature film that has something to say but does so with a great big giant monster marching through the city destroying everything and then you have other movies in the Godzilla series, where, you know, there's baby Godzillas and there's reused scenes from other movies. So Godzilla changes from one scene to another. And so there's certain movies in the Godzilla franchise that I would say, hey, this is something that everyone who likes science fiction should at least, you know, see this one. Or if you like action movies, uh, you should see this one. And then, if you like mystery science theater three thousand, well, here's a couple for you. But there are reasons why I like Godzilla movies, and, and some of them are the so bad it's good kind of thing, and some of them are it's just kind of oddball and quirky, and so I like that. But my favorite Godzilla movies are the Godzilla movies that kind of well that, that play out with human stories that have something to do with the monster story and that actually have maybe something to say about well generally speaking the ones that i like are the ones that have something to say about society at the time where they're trying to make a statement a lot of times it has to do with uh really international politics or with the environment and there's even one that really just takes kind of a a lens and and just focuses it in on latchkey children and so those movies even when they're not great uh i like it because you know the filmmakers are trying to say something they're trying to do something more than just have godzilla stomp on stuff and so this issue of godzilla issue number nine is one of those stories it's really a standalone story it's written by Doug Mensch still Herb Trimpey is still the artist we have Fred Keita who's the inker Rick Parker letterer Mary Titus the colorist and then Archie Goodwin is the editor but this particular episode or issue I should say of Godzilla for for this segment of the show it's a standalone it is not really tied into the ongoing drama that's going on around godzilla with dum-dum dugan and uh shield chasing him down uh rob nakaguchi and his 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 family along with red ronin they are in here but it's not uh, an important part of the story this issue issue number nine reminds me of a good godzilla movie or maybe It reminds me of a scene from a good Godzilla movie or the other thing that it kind of reminds me of is the old Twilight Zone TV show and the old horror comics where it would be just these short, short stories with kind of a, a twist ending, a pithy ending. But the reason it reminds me of Twilight Zone is because it follows a gambler. And so you have two real streams of action. You have Godzilla doing what he's doing. And you have this gambler in Las Vegas. And the gambler, he has a character arc. But when he gets to the end of the character arc, there's kind of a twist. And it's a personal twist. And Twilight Zone used to do this kind of thing too. Where the the ending would have this twist. But the twist is based on the actions of the character. Not so much that it's like, oh, they wake up and it's a dream but it's not really a dream. Like there's one episode of twilight zone like that, where the whole episode turns out to be a dream, but then you find out it's a dream because the exact opposite of what just happened in the entire episode is what's really happening. And it once watch it once and it's great. And it's a fun, interesting story. I'm just thinking, well, where is this going? Where is this going? And then, Oh, it was all a dream. And Oh, but they live in a world that's the exact opposite. That's really interesting. But I'm never going to watch that episode again because I know the twist. I like the episodes of Twilight Zone where the twist isn't just added on at the end to make you say, oh, wow. But to also kind of put a spin on everything you've already seen before. And this one here, this this issue of Godzilla King of the Monsters, it is, like I said, a standalone. It has a beginning, middle and an end. And it feels like it could be an episode of the Twilight Zone. It feels like and then, like I said, it feels like it could be a a scene in a good Godzilla movie and when I say that, I mean it's one of those one of those scenes where in a Godzilla movie you have random people on the street reacting to what's going on. Uh, a drunk looks up and sees lights going by, and now that's a gamma but um, he's you know sees lights going by and looks at the bottle and tosses it away. short little character arc of this guy who he's never going to drink again because (laughs) drinking makes him see things and then you can go the opposite direction where he looks and sees this thing that he shouldn't see it shouldn't exist and looks at the bottle and then decides well i'm just gonna bury myself in the bottle more and and he's gonna drink himself into oblivion with some sort of liver disease Uh, we won't see the liver disease part because you know that's way after them the movie or you know people looting the city And so you follow the people looting the city for a little bit and then they get stepped on that kind of thing. That's what this reminds me of is just taking a little more time with that character. And so I'm going to really quick just talk about the the subplots going on in here. And and that is that we have um, our our team basically, you know, Rob Takaguchi, he's back. And I hope I'm saying his name right. I'm not looking at it. I'm saying it from memory, but he's back. Red in is back with shield and it's been two days and he kind of just shut himself up in the head of the of the giant robot so that they couldn't get in. Now, he in the previous issue, he had fought Godzilla to a not not to a standstill. He actually fought Godzilla and then let him go. But he's been hiding in the, the robot. Finally, he's down and they yell at him because that was pretty irresponsible for him to do that. And then they do hear about what's going on with Godzilla out in Nevada, and they talk about reacting to that. But that re- we don't really see them go after Godzilla then until the very end, where they kind of follow him away from from the city as Godzilla is done with his rampage in in Las Vegas. That's it for that subplot. And I have to say, I don't mind if I have to see less of Dum Dum in order to see less of Rob. At this point in time, I am happy to see less of Dum-Dum. I mean, he carries the book. And I have to say, I have a special appreciation for Dum-Dum now because he has a new comic that's uh, The Howling Commandos of S.H.I.E.L.D. And that comic, it just came out. I haven't had a chance to get my hands on a copy of it yet. And that's something that we'll probably end up covering in Welcome to Level 7 in our comic book episodes that we do over there. But... I, I, I love myself some dum-dum-dugan, but I am happy to take the time off in this issue, issue number nine, to follow just this kind of off story. And I'm glad that Doug Mensch took the time to <laughs> tell a story not about dum-dum-dugan, not about Rob and Red Ronin, but about Godzilla and a man named Will- Winslow Beddett yeah bet it a man with a gambling problem and his last name is bet it okay i didn't say it was a perfect story i didn't say there was no cheese at all there's some cheese in here but uh that's the cheesy part but our our dual action story here is that godzilla is in nevada he's at the the boulder dam or the uh the hoover dam And for whatever reason, the dam has offended him because he is going at it. He is punching. He is pulling. People are running away. Uh, I think that they should have possibly known that Godzilla was coming in that direction. And maybe they would have been able to evacuate the dam earlier. They don't. People are running away now, though. And he smashes it and it starts to come down. And it washes him along with the water all the way to las vegas now in las vegas you have winslow bedded who is his last dime and he's choosing what to do with his last dime does he use it to gamble because he's gambled everything away or does he use it for a phone call does he call and use his last dime and which should he do and it's talking about decisions it's talking about fate and it is definitely mirroring the idea of the decisions that Winslow Bett is making with the decisions that Godzilla is making. Because Godzilla is now deciding, do I go into the city and destroy it or not? Winslow, instead of making the phone call, he chooses to gamble. Godzilla chooses to go through the city. and <laughs> Winslow wins. He wins. So as Godzilla is coming through, Winslow is winning money and he has a huge bag of money. He's finally made it big. He's so happy. He's going to just, you know, let it, let it ride. He he's gambling more and winning more. And meanwhile, Godzilla is coming through town and this is not good. Not only is Godzilla coming through town, but the Nevada dam the, the the boulder dam or the hoover dam or whatever it's called that water is coming through again and that is what actually saves the city uh shield doesn't it's this wall of water it's another natural force that pushes godzilla through and while everything is being destroyed all around winslow has survived But all that money he's won. He's won so much. He's never won before. He's won so much. And now it is gone. But he survives. He lives. Now Godzilla, tired of the city, not real happy about the water, walks away. Winslow starts to walk away, finds a dime. He's walking through the ruins of a building and he sees a slot machine and a phone and he has to decide what is he going to use it for and he goes he makes the phone call he makes the phone call calls marcia who starts nagging him now the whole time he's been talking about his mother and how he's just wanting to make his mother proud mom mom i did it i did it i did it she as he's talking to this Marsha person, he says, I had to do it, Marsha. Mother is counting on me and Marsha on the other end says, Winslow, you're in Las Vegas again, aren't you? You've gone off on another one, haven't you? This is the last straw. I'm leaving you. You know very well that your mother died three years ago. And Winslow says, yes, well, I'll be home soon, Marsha. Goodbye. And she says, and then we have the operator come through and says that it's an additional $1.35 to continue the call. He reverses the charges. And because he reverses the charges. The dime comes back to him. And so now. He has to choose what he's going to do. He has his last dime back. Maybe he should just make another stop in Reno. Because mother's counting on him. And it's sad because he's going to return to this gambling addiction. He's lost this Marsha. You know, and he's lost his mother three years ago and he's just going to go off and and return to his his old habits. Yeah, even after he has survived. I mean, it's all about fate. It's all about gambling. The odds are in his favor the entire day. He's won money, money, money and survived with his life through this, not just one natural disaster, but two. So what's he going to do with that second chance with life? Go back to his old habits. And that's the kind of story that... Yeah, okay. Sure, it's not super sophisticated... As far as storytelling goes. But when you consider... This is a 17-page story... About a giant fire-breathing monster... That stomps on cities... And is basically indestructible. Set in the Marvel Universe. I would say... It's a pretty sophisticated story. With those conditions. Considered anyway. I liked it though. I really enjoyed it. And I don't remember that. When I read this from years ago. There are certain things I do remember. I remember time travel. I remember him shrinking. And I remember the moon being something that happens with Godzilla. Uh, Devil dinosaur does show up. I don't remember this particular story. But. After I got done reading it, I just sat back and thought that was really good. It was a fun, short story that actually it almost says something. It definitely says something about human nature. And Godzilla is the storytelling agent. By bringing Godzilla into it, that's what causes all this to be destroyed around him, except for his life. Uh, not Godzilla, but Winslow. And so after everything is destroyed around him that he has just pumped money into and tried to get money out of, and it's destroyed, instead of saying, oh, I dodged a bullet, he's, well, what do I do now? I'll go find, I'll go to Reno and (laughs) find some slots there. So, yeah, as far as Godzilla goes, that's probably the best issue of the series. I'm just going to throw it out there. It's not the best issue I've read even for this podcast series but as far as godzilla king of the monsters goes i think it's the best yet so that wraps up this segment as i close my black and white essential book on godzilla king of the monsters it is time for me to now open my full color omnibus volume john carter warlord of mars (laughs) So let's talk about John Carter. Now, John Carter, Warlord of Mars tends to be the final segment that I do of a month because it's been so good. That Air Pirates of Mars, John Carter story that Marv Wolfman wrote, it's an original story that he created that happens in between basically two paragraphs in a uh, one of the end chapters in the first book, Princess of Mars. Uh, That story is fantastic. It was a lot of fun to to read. Uh, There were things that maybe I would have done differently or as an editor would have suggested changes, but it didn't take away from the enjoyment at all. And the conclusion of that story was really kind of bizarre, a little bit unexpected, and yet natural. It fit. And so I I really uh, I can't praise those 10 issues enough so now we're in issue 11 that story is done so where do we go from there the answer issue 11 special issue tells us on the cover the origin of dejah thoris inside you're greeted by a different title the story of dejah thoris instead of the origin of eh, it doesn't really matter too much uh we we get a splash page that i believe is drawn by gil kane um, but the rest of the book is drawn by Dave Cockrum. It's still written by Marv Wolfman. But what do we get after we finish our grand epic ten issue story? We get well. I I I divided up my my thoughts into three categories: the good, the bad, and the ugly. So I'm gonna just go from there. Uh, the summary is pretty simple. For this story, The summary is this is not necessarily Dejah Thoris's origin, but it's kind of John Carter's origin. And it's the story of how they met. The story of how she was taken prisoner by the Tharks while he was taking part in learning who they are and kind of joining their their tribe. And when he sees her, he falls in love with her. He rescues her. And they get married. It's all flashback. I mean, we have this uh, this splash page at the beginning. On the first page of the story, we get uh, some captions that say, Hey, the Air Pirates thing is done now. And now that it's done, I'm thinking about my early days on Mars. And so that's... And then it's just the story is the flashback. And so that's where... Well but I'll get into it when I get into the bad because let's start with the good. Here's the good. The art. The art is pretty good. Uh it's it's Dave Cockrum. Uh, he does a a fine fine job continuing the character designs from Gil Kane. Uh Deja Thoris is suitably beautiful. Uh she is her face especially is very expressive and very uh, just striking. And there's some moments where she just gives a little grin, and it is a beautiful image of, of just a uh she looks like a fun-loving woman. Um she the the smirk and the the twinkle in her eyes, she looks like someone who just she has fun in life. Of course, she's a prisoner of sworn enemies while she's giving that look to John Carter. So then there must be some sort of love going on there, right? If she's going to be able to to muster out that kind of a twinkle. Uh, there must be something there must be some kind of a spark and the the Tharks don't always look the greatest uh, but they they don't look bad and the action scenes look exciting and visceral and and pulpy and, and it retains all that stuff that I really have enjoyed throughout the whole the whole run As, you know, John Carter's running around or as there's sword play and that kind of thing. So the art, I am fully on board with the art. The script is pretty good, too. Now, it's an overview. And so this is taking a whole bunch of events and just kind of jumping from from spot to spot to spot. Skipping over other things that are happening so we can get to these important moments in the relationship of John Carter and Dejah Thoris. So because of the time that's passing between the scenes that you're not seeing things happening, it feels more like a, a believable romance that they are actually developing a relationship over time. And. There's times when he feels stupid because he sticks his foot in his mouth or he does something wrong or she's, you know, keeping him at arm's length because, you know, she had well, she has her reasons. But uh, he is taken with her. He fights for her. Eventually, he rescues her from the Tharks. And so at the end of the issue, I mean, we're talking again. We're looking at what, 17 pages at the end of the issue when they have a panel of them. The, the, the final page has a battle that's being fought, which is from Princess of Mars. But uh, then it shows them getting married. It's the second half of that final page. You believe it. This whole thing is is the romance. I mean, there's some action. There's some, you know, like I said, there's that pulpy, uh, vibrant action scenes happening here. But it's it, it's a believable romance. And so that's that's the good here. The bad, this is an inventory story. Uh, and, and by that, I mean, this is a story that was written by Marv Wolfman. So they could, if they were falling behind on the schedule, they could just insert it in whenever they needed to. And they could have just written any kind of captions. I mean, uh, they could have done this as issue five and just changed the caption at the beginning a little bit to say, uh, as I was sitting there thinking about where is dejah thoris i was also thinking about the first time i met her Uh, this is an inventory issue it feels like a little bit uh feels less like a story and more like a, a wikipedia entry about the plot of princess of mars or something like that and it also feels very rushed there's a lot of stuff that they're plowing through here jumping around feels a little jarring sometimes uh you know here they've picked out the best parts or the important parts I should say of a larger story and then put them together into a smaller story and it isn't perfect. It works for me in following the character arc here, but as a story where you're, you're you know just jumping around from here to here to here, it can be a little jarring. So it's not perfect, but that's why this part that I just said, that's in the bad, not in the ugly. And Here's the ugly and it's ugly. I understand why this issue is here. I mean, actually, if you go back to issue 10, you'll see, you know, Gil Gil Kane was inked by the tribe, you know, and it feels like there might've been some rushed uh, artwork happening here. Maybe even some rushed scripting. We had the annual coming out as well with, you know, different artists, but the annual coming out meant that there was more work from Marv Wolfman involved here. and, it just – and I believe from, from this point out, we're, we're getting a different art, artist altogether. It won't be Dave Cockrum anymore. He's just this kind of, again, doing this inventory story, which means they, they can put it in a drawer and pull it out whenever they need it because they just can't keep up. Because, you know, doing 17 pages or more in a month, depending on if you're working on more than one book, that can be a rough schedule to keep Now, there's nothing wrong with inventory stories. Sometimes they can be really interesting. They're just one-off stories. And in this case, it's a one-off story that shows this relationship. But my big problem with it is not that it's an inventory story at issue 11. I almost feel like this should have been issue 1. Or half of this stuff should have been there in issue 1. And then the other half in issue 2. And just kind of woven this material into those beginning issues to give us uh, a little bit more of an, an emotional connection to the relationship of john carter and dejah thoris early on in the story it just opens up with them going somewhere and then she's been kidnapped and so then the everything hinges on john carter's whole everything i do I do it for you, look into my eyes. I can't, I gotta stop, okay? Because every time I go to that phrase, obviously that song gets stuck in my head, but that's John Carter's motivation. Now, they do a good job of telling us this. They do a good job of showing him, you know, acting on that motivation. So obviously there's some motivation there, but this stuff could have been uh, just, it could have given us more emotional stakes for us as readers and 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 more of a connection to the emotional stakes for John Carter. And it just. I understand, first of all, this is inventory, so they didn't know when this was going to show up. And this is Marv Wolfman having to sit down and think, OK, so what kind of a standalone story could I do that could fit anywhere in you know, this this arc here? if it had to interrupt the arc or if it could, you know, if it could have gone further without using it. Also, I mean, Marv Wolfman was working on John Carter stories for DC that w- tended to be, you know, adaptation. And so there's that idea of kind of a rep- repetition, you know, and, and covering material that he'd already covered very, very recently. And so I can understand him not wanting to go back there. But at the same time, This stuff and this romance, you've got to be sold on the romance for those early issues to work. And it's a testament to Marv Wolfman's ability (laughs) in scripting the story that you get as much as you do because it very easily could have just fallen flat. But I would almost say change the reading order here uh skip the first caption and read this first read issue 11 first and then go into all the other stuff because this material if you haven't read princess of mars or if you haven't read the dc comics about john carter those opening issues i think i talked about this a little bit you could have been a little bit lost now uh it's it's not bad it's filler but it's important filler, but it is filler. <laughs> and so I, 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 this does not sour me on John Carter at all. Uh, I think really, this is just me as an, you know, uh, outside observer thinking as an editor, you know, or thinking as if I was, you know, one of Marv Wolfman's contemporaries and you said, Hey, I had this idea. I, I might've pushed for, for something like that. And it's quite possible that, that maybe letters, had come in asking, you know, what's the story behind that? I haven't read the book. I haven't read the other comics. What's the story for for how they met? And the other thing uh, Marv Wolfman is definitely trying to do is make sure that he is sticking to the canon as it appears in the books. Uh, I don't think there's too much of a a change in just these short events. And, And if he did add anything to it, I mean, it's been years since I've looked at The Princess of Mars. So I don't know what he added to it. I know he left a lot out, but I don't know if he added anything to it. Actually, that's not true. I do know there's one thing he added into this story and they, they call it out. I mean, it interrupts the flow of the story so they can have uh, an asterisk that takes you down to one of those one of those caption boxes. That's the editor popping in. And actually, in this case, it was Marv Wolfman, that final page that has half a page of the battle. The, kind of the climactic battle from Princess of Mars and then the, the wedding on the bottom half. Well, it says uh, that you get a Martian no prize if you spotted the fiendish Star Khan in that battle scene. Because that's what he had done is he had, uh, as we've talked about in, in previous episodes, he had pulled an enemy from this big battle. Now, it wasn't an enemy that, that Edgar Rice Burrows had created. Marv Wolfman created the enemy saying that this was someone who had fought in that battle, and it's a nice way to pull someone who has a legitimate beef against John Carter, who has a history with John Carter, but who hasn't appeared in the book other than as a, a nameless uh, well, part of the crowd, you know? And so then when they drew this panel, they actually drew Stara Khan in there. Uh, I can't tell if it's before he lost his arm or after. Because of the way his body is positioned and I can't remember which which arm he had he had lost, but it's 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 cute, it's fun, it's clever. Uh, it's also kind of funny that they realized no one's gonna notice that. You know, only someone who's really, really pouring over these these panels is, is going to recognize Starakon in, in the panel. So we better we better point it out to them. But yeah, all things considered, not a bad issue. And I think it's actually an important issue as far as just giving us backstory. Uh, I I do wish that this had been issue one or at the very least after she had been kidnapped to make this the story issue two. So we could see that backstory and then also maybe you know even see that one panel of that battle to see who to see our enemy and where our enemy came from early on. And that would be one of those things where maybe they wouldn't need to point it out and and readers who were you know reading f- beyond and and seeing oh he he was in that battle and then they go back to issue 2 and oh look he's there in that panel he's there in that panel that'd be kind of cool so that's that's where i'm going to stop uh right now though talking about john carter warlord of mars i've got some other things to cover in the next segment not just 1 not just 2 But uh, three short reviews that I'm going to be doing of three different comics that came out this same month as John Carter, Warlord of Mars, issue number 11, which, by the way, had a release date of uh, January 24th, 1978. So what are those three comics? Well, you'll find out in the next segment, as I also talk about the ads and some of the the editorial copy that appears in this month's Marvel Comics. (laughs) So this uh, segment of Ben's bullpen bulletin is going to be a little bit different than normal in in that I'm not just going to be looking at the ads and the editorial material, although I I will be looking at the ads and the editorial material. But there's also three actual comic book issues that are related to the licensed material that Marvel was doing, but that weren't actually licensed. These are Marvel comics that are Marvel's comics. And the relation for one of them is a little bit more tenuous, but it's my podcast, so I I guess I can do what I want. The other two are tied in a little more directly to some things that we've already been talking about in previous episodes of this podcast feed. So, first, I am going to look at the at the ads, and and there's some good ones. There's some good ads, uh, but they're not great. <laughs> I mean, there's there's a handful of the. The flea market ads, as I call them. And, and I don't know if anyone else calls them that. If they do, uh, I'm sorry for stealing that. But if well, or maybe they stole it from me, who who knows? But there's one here that's an electronic lie and love detector. Solid state electronic device registers emotions, feelings, reactions, test lovers, friends, relatives for lies and compatibility. Uh, there's also Star Trek Vulcan ears. Uh, the picture looks like a just a very uh, grumpy green goblin. Hercules wristband, that looks kind of cool. It's got some studs on it. Uh, I would have been interested in that as a little scrawny eight-year-old. Uh, for some reason, I, I felt like those kind of things just made you look tougher, even if you're a little scrawny eight-year-old. There's rubber gorilla hands and feet, those kind of things that you'd expect to see in these flea market pages. There's also uh, Sea Monkeys, Hardy Boys, and Nancy Drew T-shirts. More uh, Slim Jim, a little less than a meal, a little more than a snack. It's the vampire one. Uh, another flea market page. You can make money with Grit, which we've talked about. Just how that's kind of a a scheme that I really um was interested in as a kid, and now I look back at it and think I would have never made any money because I've been trying to sell that thing and. I didn't really know who to sell to. I didn't know many people who would buy that stuff. There's a full page ad for Star Wars merchandise. There's a Star Wars portfolio that contains 21 color paintings, each one suitable for framing. That looks really interesting. Uh, I really, I don't even see the paintings, but I'm imagining what they could be. And I mean, were they Ralph McQuarrie kind of things or, or what? There's a candy bar add get strong arms there's more flea market stuff there's uh superheroes assemble ad is uh, that's what it says at the top but it's a a subscription page (laughs) it has thor captain america spider-man hulk daredevil uh, Human Torch, Iron Man, Captain Marvel, Howard the Duck, and Conan, and they're all just ready to leap into action, except for Conan, who's kind of looking off to the side and ready to swing his sword, not at something that's coming at him, like the other guys. Uh, oh, and then there is <laughs> Captain Marvel, who's looking off to the other direction. It's uh, He's he's actually, it looks like he's looking at the flea market page at this guy who's asking, you want to gain weight in seven days? My method of dynamic tension starts giving you results. You can start feeling... Uh, you're adding pounds of big muscle. Lose that pot belly. But then Captain America says, There's no reason. And Spider Man says, To miss your favorite. And Hulk says, Marvel mags. And Daredevil says, So subscribe. And Human Torch says, And remember, they're all mailed flat. And Conan gives that caveat true believers only. And yeah, this man, I, I look at something like this 12 issues for 450 now, mind you, these were all 35-cent issues, but I uh, have flea market page, and you can get a flat belly, and there's the Marvel bullpen bulletins, which uh, the segment gets its name from. There's that ad, again, with Obi-Wan Kenobi standing behind a stormtrooper who's looking at a, a pretty sweet poster for the Star Wars movie, and he's tapping his shoulder and... Holding his lightsaber as if to say, uh, Excuse me, Mr. Stormtrooper, may I have that poster? And if the Stormtrooper were to say no, that lightsaber is going to get used. Luke Skywalker is wearing a Star Wars t shirt, and Princess Leia has a Star Wars tote bag, it looks like. And Han Solo is wearing a Star Wars hat. So, yeah, and then make money, get prizes with fast selling American seeds. Again, <laughs> I wish because they have like the testimonials of these these kids now it's very tiny print, but uh Kathy Cooper says I can feel confident on telling people how well they grow over garden shows or our garden shows us each year, and it's just these are kids who earn things like a bike speedometer or a cassette tape recorder or a croquet set or a nylon mountain tent or a Polaroid clincher. I assume that's a a camera. Uh, So, yeah, so those are the the ads. Now, the bullpen bulletin that uh, they're announcing how to draw comics the Marvel way. Wow, that's so cool. And then they're also introducing an item. Now, there's lots of things they're introducing in here. But this item says, you know, one of our favorite TV shows was Star Trek. And one of our biggest disappointments was that the rights to do a show to do the show as a comic book series have always been tied up. Still, we've had the itch to do non-superhero oriented sci-fi strip, and even our sensational Star Wars book hasn't totally satisfied it. In fact, judging from the cards and letters we're getting, Star Wars success has sparked a demand for more. So we've set Devil May Care, Doug Minch, and Titanic Tom Sutton to do work on a science fiction special for Marvel premiere number 41. It's called Seeker 3000 and introduces a set of characters forced to to depart a doomed earth and find new salvation for humankind in the stars. We think it's out of the ordinary comics fair and we're more than just a bit excited about it. So set aside the necessary 35 cents. It's due your way this January. We're betting you'll find it money well spent. Well, that's the question. Is it money well spent? And I wanted to, you know, check this out. and honestly, this I was I found it, and I wouldn't have covered this if I hadn't found it at a convention and actually held it in my hands and then realized this fits within the time frame and then realized it's so close to the beginning, but they definitely were trying to capitalize on the the science fiction success that Star Wars had been with their own Marvel owned comic seeker 3000 now according to mike's amazing world of comics uh which is pretty much the my prime source of information about release dates and that sort of thing this was on sale january 24th 1978 Uh, like i said before it was 35 cents but uh there's a couple extra pages of story at least one or two extra pages of story because there's no letters page in here and uh so it's it's a pilot episode really and it, you know that the marvel premiere was a, a a series that they would use to introduce new concepts maybe give them a couple issues in this case they gave that they gave it one and apparently didn't get enough reaction from the readers to actually go beyond that now years and years later i mean we're talking maybe now 10 years ago from when this episode of this podcast is being released but you know 20 years later 25 years later from when it was released in 1978 they did do and they did start an actual series of Seeker 3000 i think it went four issues i don't have those i've been curious about them but not curious enough to spend any money on it uh at least not through like mile high comics or or my comic shop like the, the normal places that i would go to for that kind of thing instead i've just been waiting to see if i see it on the shelf somewhere at a comic shop or i guess not in the shelf but in the in the back issue bins but this comic is a pilot episode and it reads like a pilot episode and it reads like a a decent pilot episode it has all the elements for great sci-fi tv all the elements except for one okay but it has sci-fi concepts there, is, there are telepathic characters. There's cloning. There's faster than light travel. There's apocalypse, that, that, that doomed earth that was mentioned in the blurb. It happens here. There's cool technology. The ship design is really neat. I really liked it. Uh, there's exciting um, plans and there's exciting battles and, and all that. There's some twists and some turns in the plot. And the thing it's missing is characters. The characters are angry. They're unlikable. They're dry. Uh, they, they start out, I mean, our, our main character, they start out rebelling against kind of basically the, the, the evil empire. But they start out very angry about what the evil empire is doing. And it's very hard to, to figure out what's going on at first. And the, the closest thing to any real depth comes from some bad science of cloning. <laughs> And and then a a big twist that comes at the end uh, with an emotional appeal and and what they're trying, what what the bad guy was trying to do when he gives an emotional appeal to the the good guys to try and convince them to do something. But the, the bad science from the cloning is that they are carrying cells in the ship to clone all the best of the best from Earth to start a new civilization. Great idea except they're kind of approaching it as if they'll still have their memories and they'll still be the people when, when the clones are grown, they'll still be the people that they were before. And that just kind of, well, from what we know about cloning, I mean, maybe it is the future. What is the year? The 3000, but it's, it's a great mashup of star Wars and star Trek. It has a clever hook and there's a big, huge twist at the end that, sets up the series that sets up what's going to make this, not just a star Trek. They're going to be flying around through space, looking for a new home, which it, I mean, star Trek wasn't doing that, but they're, they're, they're looking for a new home. And as they're looking for a new home, uh, the main bad guy is able to kind of latch to them in a really interesting way that I wish they could have had a chance to explore later on i just also would have liked some some more characterization but again you know we're talking what an 18 page story here and they do a pretty good job of telling a a good opening story of a sci-fi world exploring what the world can do and 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 the how fast and light travel works for them and uh giving them a a goal to go after but the end and i'm going to spoil it right now and and the only reason I'm, I'm saying that i mean this is a very very old comic book obviously almost what 40 years old but the reason i'm saying that is if you did get a chance to get this you maybe wouldn't want this spoiled and so i i'm going to spoil i'm going to say you know uh skip ahead 30 seconds if you can because the bad guy here's the spoiler so skip ahead now the bad guy downloads himself into the mainframe of the ship so he's always with them this is really neat, and it's a way to have like a a Dr. Smith from Lost in Space without completely copying Dr. Smith from Lost in Space. So Seeker 3000, definitely to capitalize upon Star Wars, but not totally do a carbon copy of Star Wars. They did a pretty good job of it. And they like I said, nice mashup of Star Wars and Star Trek. And the ship design definitely you can tell. they're They're looking for a Star Trek vibe. But it also has a retro feel that doesn't Totally go along with what you know the Star Trek uh, models looked like in the, in the TV show. So, from Seeker Three Thousand, we're going to move on to uh, the Jack Kirby stuff. Now, for people interested in sci-fi and and comics and Star Wars and that kind of thing, uh, there was a, a number of other things that you could, might be interested in. First of all, there was the star, uh, Superman versus Muhammad Ali, which uh, actually says on the cover. Uh, Fighting to save Earth from Star Warriors. I mean, they're they're definitely capitalizing on the whole, you know, space craze and sci-fi craze. And then Howard the Duck, uh, this month, the Howard the Duck issue, is the one that has the cover that parodies Star Wars, and you have uh, Howard kind of taking the place of of Luke, and uh, Man Thing is kind of back there taking the place of of Chewbacca, and it's it's a a nice. Uh, uh, homage i guess it's it's one of my favorite issues of of that series it's actually the the story itself is called star wah so I, and i do i i admit i i love howard the doc i love man thing and i love uh, steve gerber and this is a nice mixture of all those in the context of a a space opera and, and there were other things as well uh gold gold key had uh issue 51 of their star trek series that Marvel couldn't touch Uh, that was that came out this month as well January of 1978 but the Jack Kirby stuff and and the reason I bring it up and and want to talk about it is because these sprung out of one literally and one I'm going to say spiritually sprung out of the 2001 comics that Jack Kirby was doing and that's why I wanted to read these I wanted to cover these and, again, that same convention where I found that Secret 3000 comic, I started finding as I was looking for back issues of, of some of the things I needed to fill in uh, the gaps for this, this series, I started to find uh, Machine Man comics. And I thought, you know what? I should just go for it with Machine Man. I'm going to try and get them all. All the ones that Jack Kirby did anyway. I'm not going to go any further than that with this coverage. And so in Ben's bullpen bulletin, I'm going to be covering Machine Man And the other comic that was coming out at the same time, that's the spiritual, um, spiritual child star child, I guess, uh, of, of 2001 and that's devil dinosaur and devil dinosaur. I have a, an omnibus and I'm just going to go as far as Jack Kirby's work on machine man went and I'm going to go until uh devil dinosaur is canceled, um, I think they both end on on issue 10 or something like that. But I I wanted to cover these because they do. They spring right out of his mind uh, and kind of out of what he was doing with 2001, A Space Odyssey. And so for Devil Dinosaur, like I said, though, that is more of a spiritual thing. It's actually what if Jack Kirby's uh, prehistoric stories from 2001 were a Saturday morning cartoon. <laughs> um and and actually that's pretty literal. Uh, uh Jack Kirby had left Marvel, went to DC, created a whole bunch of the that fourth world stuff, but he also created Commandy, the Last Boy on Earth. Commandy was inspired by Planet of the Apes and it 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 was Jack Kirby doing Jack Kirby stuff and some of that commandy stuff actually could be seen in his 2001 material that he was doing, but 2001 they they canceled it be, mainly because at the end of the 2001 run, as we covered earlier in this podcast, uh, he created a character called Mister Machine. Well, Mister Machine. Actually, then the same month that Devil Dinosaur Issue 1 came out, Mr. Machine got his own title, which was Machine Man. Meanwhile, this Devil Dinosaur seemed to kind of come out of that same place as well. Now, at that time, the way that Tom Brevert relates it in his introduction to the, the omnibus that I have. He says, uh, at that time, Marvel had begun making inroads into the world of television and only be a few short years before a full-fledged Marvel animation studio would be founded. So having learned that Commandy was in development for Saturday morning, someone at Marvel, Stan Lee possibly, hit upon the idea of having Jack develop a commandy like property for Marvel. Even if it wasn't a big seller as a comic book, it might be worthwhile venture as a cartoon. Kirby, it seems, was game, although he had never been fond of repeating himself. His imagination was too far wandering to be limited to producing jazz riffs on stories he'd already told. So in answer to this challenge, he chose to produce a series with the same straightforward appeal that had characterized his commandy work. But rather than being set in the near future, he would chronicle events in the distant past. His protagonist would be a massive red dinosaur, aided and abetted by a young ape-man. It would be a prehistoric story about a boy and his dog as they encountered monsters, aliens, witches, and demons. It wasn't especially deep, but it was fun. Devil Dinosaur never did make its way into the world of animation, but Jack Kirby did. At the same time he was producing the series, he was also called upon to draw storyboards for a Fantastic Four cartoon, then in production. And so the story here, it is, it's a simple story. It's the story, I like the way they put it, the story of a boy and his dog, but it's a a boy and his great big giant massive mean uh, dinosaur and this is jack kirby at his best i i enjoyed reading it this felt of a kind with all of the prehistoric stuff from 2001 there's powerful line work there's muscular art there's bombastic dialogue after devil dinosaur chases away a triceratops <laughs> here's Moonboy's dialogue thunderhorn is gone Devil is master of the valley. He is the mightiest of beasts. Who is happier than Moon Boy when his giant brother conquers his enemies? There is safety in his shadow and food where he trods. Come, devil, it will soon be night. Let us find shelter and listen to the wood spirits. They will shout your name to all who dwell in the valley. And the dialogue goes on like that. It's bombastic. It's big. It's broad. This issue is an origin story and basically devil dinosaur loses his family to a tribe of mean evil cavemen and moon boy loses his family because he goes and rescues devil dinosaur devil dinosaur had fallen into a fire and that's what makes him all red and moon boy meets him and everyone's scared of of devil dinosaur and then we go to the present we find out that the killer folk plan to kill the the nice guys <laughs> the, and then they're also setting a trap for devil dinosaur and and that's the cliffhanger ending is is devil dinosaur and moonboy are about to jump into this trap of a hole with a bunch of pointed sticks in them and it's it just it's it's a simplistic storytelling it's a mythological storytelling it uh, it it reads like a a violent saturday morning cartoon <laughs> And I liked it. Uh, I like Devil Dinosaur in general. I've read through this omnibus uh, once before. And I'm happy to read through it again. Uh, there's some stories I remember being... There's I remember, I remember there being some weird stories with some kind of Adam and Eve type tropes going on. There was some sort of weird insect thing going on. And then there's this kind of time traveling witch kind of thing going on. And uh, another reason why I, I want to cover Devil Dinosaur is that... Uh, Later on in the Godzilla comic, after Devil Dinosaur was cancelled, I believe, I I don't know, we'll find out when we get there with the timeline, but uh, Godzilla either gets sent into the past or Devil Dinosaur gets brought into the future, but uh, Godzilla meets Devil Dinosaur and and Moon Boy, and so, you know, there's a good reason here to to find out more about Devil Dinosaur. And so I, I won't be spending as much time in future installments, but we'll definitely be checking in. Again, with Moon Boy and Devil Dinosaur. So, issue number one of, of uh, Devil Dinosaur was January 17, 1978. Uh, the next week, January 24th, 1978, Machine Man hit. Now, Machine Man, I was able to gather almost all the issues while I was at that convention. Issue number one, I will not be able to gather it. I don't know how rare it is or what, but it was a more expensive uh, issue to, to try and get however i did find a reprint of this it was reprinted in marvel milestones uh which the issue that it was reprinted in kind of focused in on uh bloodstone it had an issue of bloodstone in a more modern issue and then had it had a two stories of bloodstone from uh 1975 amazing spider annual number amazing spider-man annual number 16 is also in there that has you know, it's from 1982 but it has Captain Marvel and that's actually the Captain Marvel that I remember it's the woman Captain Marvel that I had that uh, they did a first issue of, of that I don't know if they continued with her series but I really found it fascinating that here's this Captain Marvel and for me I didn't realize when I was buying it off the newsstand that Captain Marvel was actually a character Uh, that had had a couple different variants on that name in Marvel Comics. For me, it was weird because Captain Marvel was a woman in Marvel Comics who shared a name with a man in DC Comics. I didn't know about all of the the trademark and, and all that kind of stuff that was going on. But here, Machine Man uh this again like i said january so it's a 35 cent cover date or cover price and then the cover date is that april 1978 and it picks up kind of where 2001 left off but it picks up in such a way that really if you didn't know what was going on you didn't need to uh There is that box at the top that they had started doing where it says this is the story of X-51, a thinking computer in the form of a man. As Aaron Stack, he tries to find a place in a world that's not quite ready for his kind. But will he find it as a friend, foe, or the greatest hero of them all? Stan Lee presents the adventures of the robot with a soul. Machine man. And the story starts with him rescuing a guy who's falling off a cliff and to rescue him he's shooting his arm out you know because he can that do that power with his arm where he extends his arm but he's not just extending his arm he's extending his arm with these rungs sticking off to make a kind of a ladder off of his his arm but the guy falls before he's able to grab the hand so he jumps after the guy and flies up with the guy and they can't believe it and He's saying, well, "What are you? who are you? What are you? This is amazing. He says, what is your name, sir? He says, just call me machine, man. And then he says, now, unless your boots are as highly magnetized as mine, I'd avoid the cliff's edge if I were you. Goodbye, gang. And he's saying that as he's actually walking down the face of the cliff. Uh, meanwhile, we have uh, the top secret division of the governmental research facility, and we get... The the backstory of how they blew up all Machine Man's fellow machines. He was the one who, who was able to escape that because of a scientist who liked him. That's uh, Abel Stack, who is a a psychologist. And they they also then say, well, you are going to have to destroy this this guy. You're going to have to destroy that 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 robot. And the main scientist guy who's involved, he doesn't want to do that. Machine Man, meanwhile, is going off through the woods, and he finds a guy who is trying to get past a a tree that's fallen across the road machine man is able to help and the guy gives him a ride but the guy is a psychiatrist and as machine man is talking to him he's like i don't want you to analyze me uh so i'm gonna get out now because they're in in the middle of a traffic jam so he puts his feet together toe to heel little wheels come out and he's zipping along like He's on a skateboard and then some police see him and they're like, Hey, you shouldn't be doing that. So he just flies away at supersonic speeds. Meanwhile, the army's getting ready to go get him. And he comes to a house and it doesn't realize that the army is wanting to attack him. The army is actually able to track him. And he, he comes to this house and it's, uh, they attack him just without warning And this is where, just this is Jack Kirby power, you know. And one of the things that Jack Kirby does so well is the beaten down hero who is just doing everything he can to stand up again as he's being blasted down. And as he falls to the ground and they're getting ready to come in for the final blow, he escapes because, you know, he can't get up. But. He's damaged, but you know what's undamaged? The tank treads in his arm that are able to pull him away from the army. And so then we find out in the, the letters page, that's that's the end of the story. But he's going to go and find the guy who, you know, the psychologist, he doesn't want, or the psychiatrist rather. He doesn't want to get mixed up with a psychiatrist, but he needs help. In the letters page, machine mail it it's uh, that mission statement page of you know that you often get in the first issue the machine as the dude next door and this is where basically Kirby says here's the what I want the machine man stories to be this is going to be about a machine who moves in next door and what's it like for him it, he's uh, it's now my job to move our machine man from his fantasy quarters to a suburban housing tract where Joe and Mabel and the kids will have to decide just how to take their new neighbor. There is no telling what sorts of trials and tribulations may arrive from such may arise from such a meeting, but you can be as certain as this writer that it will be a very compassionate and human story. And so I'm not sure what to make of that. Uh, After all, each of us has a story. Each of us is a story. And as one of us, our machine man could well have the most absorbing tale of all he's neither friend nor foe he could be a problem or a godsend some might invite him to the party while others would bar him from the club he's just another dude who happens to have a body of impenetrable armor electronic eyes and a deadly hand weapons system they could easily go into some just plain old comedy situations i mean this that that sounds like the setup for a sitcom it also sounds like the setup for An hour-long drama about a robot that goes around helping different people every week. Who knows which way they're going to take it. But yeah, so that's Kirby continuing those threads and themes that he was building in 2001. And frankly, I'm much happier to see it in Devil Dinosaur and in Machine Man than I am in a comic called 2001. But I'm also happy to track along with Jack Kirby a little bit more here in this series like I said we'll be checking in on Machine Man and Devil Dinosaur but not nearly with the length of what I was doing here the primary focus of this podcast is Marvel's licensed comics but for like I said since this spun out of that we'll be checking in again and there's other things like that with let's say Godzilla where they follow up on some of those strands in issues of Fantastic Four or Iron Man or something And I'm I'm planning to do that as well. When, if I get there, I realize this is a massive project. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to have the fortitude to finish, but I'm going to run strong as long as I can. So that brings us to the end of of this segment. That brings us to the end of this month. Next, I'll be looking at the, uh, well, January, February, March, April, the May 1978 cover date comics. So until then, thank you so much for listening. I'd love to hear from you if you have read any of these titles and if you have any thoughts about these titles, uh, just go ahead and, and write into feedback at comicbooktimemachine.com or check us out on Facebook. Uh, so until next time, though, with that said, Godspeed.